The reading this evening is from Hosea 2, um, starting at verse 2, and can be found on page 900 of the Church Bibles. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen, intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the boughs. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bowels from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lefek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol, 
Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, our Father, that by your word you spoke creation into being. And we praise you, Father, that we have that word now before us. And so, Father, just as your spirit was there at the beginning of creation, we pray that he would work now through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I say, you've got a chance to ask me questions, but I want to start with a question for you, which is this. How do you imagine God? How do you kind of picture God in your head? Maybe he's like the policeman or policewoman who, as long as you do the right thing, you'll be okay. But to be honest, you don't have much to do with them. It's only when you cross the line that you do. Or perhaps you have in mind the head teacher, who um, you may see a little bit more of, but you're always kind of tempted to put the best side of you across, to be the kind of model student. Or perhaps like the boss, who, yes, we do see each day, and uh, we know that there's a real upside with the boss, we can be massively rewarded, but you've got to put in the work, you've got to put in the hours, you've got to be in the office. It might seem like a strange question to ask with, but I'm pretty sure that actually... Uh, our experience of the Christian life really does come down to how we imagine God and understand him. So just imagine for a second you thought of God as the policeman. Uh, your main aim when it comes to God is to do the right thing, to stay within the boundaries. If you think of him like the head teacher, well, then you're always going to be tempted to put that best side of you across, hoping that he'll be pleased. Or if you think of him like the boss, you're tempted to kind of just pour yourself into all the things you think will please him, thinking that's the way that you'll be rewarded. But today's passage shows us really that those images really won't do. Um, The best, they really misunderstand God. And why I want us to see in this passage this evening, having one of those images would always leave us with this kind of lukewarm sense of loving our relationship with God. See, the people in Hosea's day really didn't have the right image of God, and because of that, we see that they didn't have the right relationship. Now, it's important to see that the, day, uh, the people in Hosea's day weren't unbelievers. They were at church, they said the creed, they believed in Yahweh, but they took him for granted. And so it didn't really change their lives Monday to Saturday. And so what Hosea does in chapters 2 and 3 is get the people right between the eyes and shows them what God is really like. And he's going to show them that he's not like the policeman, he's not like the head teacher, he's not like the boss. He's like a husband. He's like a partner. And we're going to see that if we grasp that, actually that changes the whole way we think of ourselves and we think of God and we understand the Christian life. Now, I know it's a long passage, and thank you for bearing with us on the reading. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for reading it. Um, But basically, it splits in half around verse 14. You'll see it therefore in verse 14. We'll get to that in a moment. But right up to verse 14, it's all about the people's actions, how they have treated God. And in verse 14, it turns around, and it's focused on God's response to them, how he would treat them. But this image running throughout the whole section is this idea that God is a husband, And so that first point on your handouts, we see here that the people have cheated. 
Now, remember the story last week. Uh, Hosea is a prophet, and he's told to go and marry a prostitute in chapter 1, verse 2. And uh, between chapters 1 and 2, there seems to be a little bit of time that's passed. And it seems that that time has been... uh, The worst has happened. See, remember, I spoke about Hosea at the wedding, and it seems that all those people at the wedding who were saying, that's never going to last. Marrying a prostitute, how long is that going to last? Uh, or she won't be able to s- stop herself. So all those people that said that at the wedding now seem to be right. Because we find Hosea, in chapter 2, verse 2, asking his children to rebuke his mother, uh, their mother, or rather uh, plead with their mother. Verse 2, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. See, it's like um, mum and dad have a row, and uh, dad says to mum, because he's so angry, tell your mother I won't be home tonight. And so the mother replies to the children, tell your dad that the front door will be locked. But it's not kind of a one-off row. This is serious. This is marriage-ending stuff. Goma has gone off and committed adultery. And it seems she won't even answer Hosea's calls because she's in bed with other men. But remember, this is just not just a story about Hosea and Goma. Um, I may have said this before, but um, often prophecy works a bit like the way um, the novel Animal Farm works. You know, Animal Farm, it's a story about animals and farms, uh, hence the title. Uh, but actually, as you read it, you realize it's a story about another nation. It's about the USSR and Uh, all the things that um, occurred in its early days. And and it's similar here. We're reading a story about Hosea and Gomer, but actually we quickly see it's a story uh, about the nation. Because this act of adultery symbolizes the adultery of the people. So you'll notice in verse 3, God says this, "'Otherwise I will strip her naked "'and make her as bare on the day as she was born. "'I will make her like a desert.'" turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. Now, I don't think that's Hosea speaking about his wife. Actually, that word desert there is the same word that pops up in the Exodus several times. And so when God says, I'm going to make her naked, I'm going to make her like the day she's born, it's like God saying, I'm going to press the rewind button, take back everything that I've given you. I'm going to turn back the clock. It's it's like God is on the way to the divorce court saying, the marriage is over, and I'm going to take back everything I've given you. See, you see what God's showing here? He's like a partner. He's like the husband who has been cheated. See, if we have the wrong image of God, I think we have that wrong sense of the seriousness of sin. See, if you think of God uh, a bit like a policeman, uh, often you might think sin is a bit like the speeding ticket, that you kind of get issued and you need Jesus to pay for it. Or if you think of God like the head teacher, you might think, well, he's like the one who hands out detention. But actually, when you see he's like the husband, you see sin in a completely different way, don't you? It's like cheating. Now, being cheated on is one of the worst feelings a human being can endure. And perhaps some of us this evening have experienced that pain firsthand. I don't know if you're married, perhaps you've had one of those dreams where your partner's had an affair and You've got really angry in your dream, and you've woken up, and you're, you're raging. You're thinking, how dare you? Is that just me? Does anyone happen? <laughs> but it's completely appropriate, isn't it? Because it is a great crime 
to take that most intimate of relationships and to share it with another human being. Now, we don't know how Hosea felt, but maybe he thought at the wedding that it would be different, that Goma could change, that history wouldn't repeat itself. But then he noticed Goma going out later and later and making up strange stories and noticing all the text messages had been deleted. And so one day he decides to follow Goma and she walks into town. And he stands back, he watches a a distance as she talks to some cars at the side of the road. And he watches her lean into one car, talk to the driver, and then the driver smiles and she gets in the passenger door and they drive off. And Hosea gets that sinking feeling. She's cheated again. But that is how God is saying he feels about his people. He feels cheated on. Now, we're not Israel in the same way, and we're not under the same covenant in quite the same way as they were, and we will get to that uh, a bit later. But this is still the same God, and this is still how he feels about sin. See, God is not like the policeman who just issues a speeding ticket, but it doesn't really affect him. He's not like the head teacher who dishes out a detention, but uh, doesn't really affect them either. He is like the one who has been cheated on in a marriage. The one who has married us, but then uh, we've turned our back on him. Maybe you think to yourself, that's a bit strong. Isn't it a bit strong to put sin uh, as kind of in these terms? But God not only makes the accusation, he goes on to prove it. And uh, we see this under our second point, uh, under the first point, second one, 1.2. I know there's not 1.2, but that kind of idea. Uh, because here we see the people, uh, what's caused that adultery or what lies at the heart of it. See, um, verses 5 to 13 are the equivalent of the divorce papers. This is God setting out all the evidence for why he's been cheated on. It's all the text messages. He's filing the report from the private investigator, submitting all the photos of the other lovers. And verse 5 explains what the the offense has been. Verse 5, their mother has been unfaithful, and she has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers, who will give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Do you see? She's gone after other lovers. But who are these other lovers? Well, look at verse 13. God says, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. Now, that name Baal is um, important in the book of Hosea. We're going to come back to it time and time again. Uh, It's the name of a deity or a god uh, at this time. See, Baal was thought to be the lord or the master over the wind and the rain and the lightning. Now, if you look at that little diagram on the left, you'll just see that Baal, uh, he's got a lightning rod in his hand. Uh, And that's a little model of Baal as well. Now, remember, these people are in a subsistence culture. Their lives depended on their crops, and so the weather was everything. So if you wanted a good crop for the year, you would go to Baal, you would make an offering, or go to the temple prostitutes, and kind of prompt Baal to act. Now, I don't know about you, it's easy to kind of look at the little gods there, look at the little model, and kind of laugh at it, and think, well, that's so primitive. But it's important we grasp the attraction because then we see how this kind of hits home for us. See, look again at why Israel is going to these other gods. Do you see what she says? I will go after my other lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Do you see what the attraction is? 
It's stuff. It's things that kind of keep us going. See, an idol was the way to survive. It was the way to feel secure, to keep going as a human being. Now, what's important to see here is that the people weren't kind of anti their God. They weren't anti Yahweh. It's just that they needed Baal to provide for the everyday needs, the everyday practical needs. See, when it comes to the nuts and bolts of life, they felt that they needed a God like Baal to feel secure. Now, when you start to see it like that, you start to see how idols really start to hit home with us. We might not have sacrifices that we bow down to, although lots of the world does, but we do give ourselves to things that we think are going to provide us security, a sense of status as a human being. I worked uh, in the city in Canary Wharf for 12 years, and let me say, I've not experienced a work uh, work ethic like it. In one sense, um, they were the most religious places I've ever worked, even including the church, because people were there at the altar of their desks for hours. I I worked at a law firm for a bit, and um, I heard while I was there three people going off with chronic fatigue. Uh, People in my office worked all hours, and I saw several relationships sadly end. I saw a marriage collapse. I saw people who were not seeing their families for a whole week. And it's interesting, as I thought about what I was seeing... It wasn't the money that was driving people. See, all of those jobs provided enough money to be more than comfortable enough. But it was that sense in which this is the way to show I matter. I'm secure. Nothing can touch me. See, it's not that work is bad, and not everyone sort of fell into that kind of way, but idols are often like that. They're often good things that become God things. And it might not be work for you, but there will be something in your life, I know, that will tug on your heartstrings, something that says to you, God is not enough on on his own. You need me. You need your success in your exams. You need to keep your looks. You need to be popular. Without it, you just won't survive. Now, why are idols so serious? Well, it's twofold. First of all, they just cannot satisfy what we actually need. See, um, look at the outcome for Israel in chapter, in verse 6, chapter 2. God says this, Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her up so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. See, do you see what God's saying? He's saying, I'm going to frustrate them in their idolatry. Now, God's not being mean there. God just cannot share his glory with anything else. And so Goma is going to chase after her lovers, but each time she sleeps with another man and another man, she's going to feel less and less loved. And that is the great travesty of idols. They never give us what they claim. See, if we find ourselves driven by them, we will find that they're less and less secure, and they give less and less in return. Uh, There's an author called uh, David Foster Wallace, who sadly uh, died uh, a few years ago. And uh, he wrote, uh, he gave one of these, um, you know, in America they give these, uh, they do it here as well, they give these kind of graduation speeches. Has anyone seen one of those? Um, They're normally pretty dull, and you kind of sit through them. Sorry if you've ever given one. Uh, But uh, this one is absolutely fascinating. Uh, It was given to uh, a college in the States, and uh, this is an author. He's thought lots about Uh, this issue. I don't think he's a Christian, um, and um, he's not particularly coming from a Christian basis, but listen to what he says anyway. 
In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what you get to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the Wicca Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, they will tap you of the real meaning of life, and then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and this sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never, you will never ever uh, find power, uh, sorry, you would need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're not evil or sinful, is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. See, idols just cannot satisfy. And even this non-Christian author sees that. But the, the craziness of idols is not that they just don't satisfy, they, they take us away from the one who can. See, look at what God says in verse 8. She says, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal. Now, do you see, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, I was the one who gave us, gave Israel these things. But he kind of turns it up a notch, doesn't he? He says, I lavished on them silver and gold. See, God is saying, look, the, the great tragedy here is that God was never stingy. He always gave the people what they needed, but they thought they had to go to an idol for it. See, it's a great travesty, isn't it? That they treated God like an idol, thinking they had to run to this statue to get what they needed. Imagine a family, and in this family, the, the, the children are, are looked after, and each night the mother feeds them, and they say thank you to God and thank you to their mother. But then one day the child has an idea and thinks that their teddy bear is going to provide them dinner. Now, this seems pretty cute at first, and the mother kind of laughs at it, but the, the child kind of gets obsessed by it. And each night the child asks the teddy bear, can I have dinner tonight? Uh, it goes on for a couple of weeks, and the parents kind of just put up with it. But then the child starts praying to this teddy bear and then starts getting cross with the mother because the teddy bear provides for the children, but not the mother. See, it sounds like a ridiculous scenario, doesn't it? But that's what Israel are doing. They're turning from the giver and assuming that these things come out of little statues uh, like a teddy bear. See, God is not stingy. He provides what his people need, but idols take us away from God's grace, and they kind of morph it and make it into something that we feel we've got to earn or achieve or do well to receive. I, I think I told this story in the morning congregation. Sorry if you've heard it before, just ignore me. But I, I remember very vividly when I was back in work, I was uh, new at my desk in this pretty, um, pretty impressive building, and uh, I was sitting there in my new kind of Marks and Spencer suit, feeling pretty chuffed about myself. And I remember my church leader uh, phoned me up about something, and we were chatting away. And at the end of the conversation, he said, well, you've got your own phone line. 
which I know is not very impressive now, but this is, you know, 12 years ago or something, so it was pretty, pretty cool at the time. And without thinking, I just said, well, yeah, I've earned it, and put the phone down. And I thought to myself, Rob, you clown. Because right up to then, I've been praying, I've been thanking God for my job, but in that moment, my heart was exposed, and I thought, here's the real me. Here's the real me, thinking that I've done it. See, often we do that, we forget that God has given us everything. If we're intelligent, well, who's given us our brain? Who's given us the ability? If we've got a good job, who's given us the ability to live in a country where good jobs are available? If we happen to be good-looking, who's designed our face? See, we, sure, we do the work, we look nice, but it's all ultimately from God. Do you see the point? We're going to come back to this in weeks to come, but you don't need to bow down to a statue to be captured by idols. You just need to distort that image you have of God and turn him into something like a boss. But God is saying, no, I'm a husband. See, a husband loves to provide. A boss doesn't automatically provide. See, to treat him like a boss is to treat him like an idol, and to treat him like an idol is to cheat on him. I don't know about you, when you see it in those terms, you can think that God's perfectly within his rights to end everything, to row back the relationship and finish with Israel. But as we see in our second point, that's not quite how it plays out. Um, Notice uh, verse 14, it starts with a therefore. Now, uh, I know this is a bit silly, but uh, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. Uh, It kind of links two bits you like that, don't you? Uh, it links two bits together. Um, just cover the rest of verse 14 up for me with your thumb or finger, uh, that sort of thing. Don't peek, just so you can see the therefore. And just ask yourself, what do you expect it to say? My people have cheated. They've gone after other gods, even though I was provided for them. Therefore, I will destroy them. I will finish with them. Do you notice what it says? You can move your thumbs now. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert. I will speak tenderly to her. Now, that word allure, it it kind of means persuade, uh, like the way a man would persuade a woman to go out with him, but not in a creepy way, not in a negative sense. I was trying to capture this. It's, It's a bit like a man kind of playing a guitar to try and woo a woman, or, or making a mixtape. I know lots of you don't know what a tape is, but making a mixtape or playlist or whatever of, of a woman's favorite songs to kind of win her over. It's that kind of sense. And, and God says, I'm going to lead her into the desert. It's, it's like when a married couple who've got into hard times go back to that first restaurant where they first met to kind of remember what they had. See, did you see what God's saying? I'm going to win you back. See, it's like the divorce papers get pulled at the last minute and and ripped up, and God says the marriage is not over. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy, isn't it, to read this bit and think, aha, here's the salvation bit. This is kind of how the Bible works, isn't it? We get the bad news, and then we get the good news. But actually, if you read this carefully, it's not going back to the kind of status quo. See, it's not that Gomer just says sorry and moves in. Actually, it's still pretty negative. See, look at um, chapter 3, verse 4, just over the page here. Uh, We haven't got time to look at this in detail, but I want us to see here in verse 4 what's going to happen. For the Israelites will uh, will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idols. See, what Hosea is promising there 
is a very dark time where everything is going to be stripped for the nation. The people are going to go into exile. But here's the thing. That dark time is not without reason. See, God is going to do something with them. Just look over the page uh, back at verse 16 to, to what he's going to do. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. Now, that word master and and lord, um, you'll see there in the little footnote that it's actually the same word for Baal. That's what Baal means. It means lord or master. Uh, And God is saying, look, you're no longer going to call me Baal. Now, when I first saw that, I thought to myself, surely the people know God's name. In what sense are they calling him Baal? But I don't think it means that they've forgotten his name. I think it means that they don't know him properly. See, they're thinking of God like Baal, like an idol. See, it's like they've put a mask on God, so they don't really see God as he really is. It's a kind of grotesque version of him. See, God is saying, look, you've treated me like an idol, like a boss, like a master. You think that as long as you show up at church, as long as you do your bit, as long as you don't sin too much, then you're okay. But God is saying, I'm going to change you so you don't see me that way. So you don't see me as a boss, but as a husband. See, we can very easily get in that way of thinking. Even for many years, even for being in church, uh, we can end up thinking of God like a boss rather than a husband thinking that our love of God affects his love of us, so that when we're faithful, when we're serving, when we're doing well, we think that God is pleased with us. And when we fail, when we mess up, when we sin, then we feel his love has gone down, and we often find it difficult to come back to him. And we kind of get in that kind of cycle, I don't know if you've ever got in it, where you kind of sin, and you think, I've got to move away from God for a few days, and then I'll come back to him, I'll say sorry, and then we repair the relationship, and then you stuff up again, and you go back around the cycle, and you constantly get on that cycle, and you can see why, can't you? If God is like a boss, he rewards you when you do well. But the thing is, that relationship never kind of captures your heart. God's there, he, you understand him, but he's kind of distant. We never kind of hate sin as we should, and we never love him as we want to. But do you see what God's saying? I I want to have a different relationship with you. I don't want to have a relationship with you like that, like a boss, like a master. I want you to call me your husband. Now, how's that possible? How do we shift our view of God? Well, verse 19 gives us a very big clue. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Now, to betroth is not the same as to marry. Uh, it's not quite the same as an engagement. To, to betroth is to give a marriage gift with the expectation of marriage. Um, I saw this when I was uh, in Uganda for a while. Uh, there were young guys uh, who wanted to get married, but they hadn't kind of got the bridal gift together, uh, and so they wanted to get the betrothal gift uh, to get married. And, and God is saying, look, I'm going to betroth you, but it's not with cash, it's with my qualities. Verse 19, notice what he says, I betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and in compassion. See, in other words, God is saying, I'm going to betroth you with my qualities, things that you should have been, but things that I am. See, God is saying, I'm going to betroth you with myself. 
And that is what we see in Jesus Christ when he gives himself for you and me. See, this chapter made me see these words in a different light. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, that means make holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. See, God is saying, I'm going to take Goma. I'm not going to just bring her into the house. I'm not just going to take her sorry. I'm going to transform her. I'm going to wash her. I'm going to sanctify her. See, this is the way we stop seeing God like an idol, like a boss, like a master. It's when we see that he has done it for us, when we see that his love for us uh, has transformed us. It's not down to our performance. It's down to him and his decision to betray us. Now, as remarkable as this is, it gets even better in chapter 3 because God gives a live illustration of what he's just tried to say. Uh, We're back in verse 1 with Hosea, back again, we're back with a story, Uh, and God says to him in verse 1, go show love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love sacred raisin cakes. You can ask me about that bit later. But um, I said last week that uh, chapter 1 verse 2 is the hardest verse in the Bible because Hosea's told to go and marry a prostitute. But let me correct that. I think this is the hardest verse, uh, one of the hardest verses in the Bible. And the key difference is that word again. You can just about stomach, can't you, the idea of marrying a prostitute, but the idea of marrying a prostitute who then goes on and cheats and being told to go and marry her again, it's just unthinkable. But it gets even stronger than that. Look at verse 2. Hosea says this, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethek of barley. See, it seems at this point Gomer has got into slavery or she's kind of caught in the grip of another man. And so Hosea gets 15 shekels, he gets the barley, he gets uh, the, uh, the homer uh, together and uh, he goes down and goes down to the dodgy part of town. He finds the brothel, he knocks on the door asks for Gomer, and says, I'm buying you back. And the man says, she can't go, she's got work to do, she's my slave, and he says, I'll pay her debts. I'll count the cash out. She's coming with me. Now, I was listening to someone who was speaking uh, on a kind of introduction to Hosea, and uh, she said to, to us, imagine Hosea's sister at this point. Hosea's sister's been round after Gomer walked out. She's been helping her brother, helping with the kids, getting them to school and that sort of thing. And then one day she sees Hosea emptying out the piggy bank and then looking through the cupboards for what's there. And she asks Hosea, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to go and buy her back. And she says, what? After what she's done? But this really is what our God does. See, remarkably, our God doesn't divorce us. He doesn't leave us to face the consequences of our idolatry. He doesn't even kind of wait for us to clean ourselves up and then come to us. He comes to us, buys us back by his own blood, and takes us to be his own forever. See, this is how we stop seeing God like an idol, like a master, like a boss. See, idols and bosses don't give themselves for you in this way. Only God does. I wonder how you imagine God. Do you see him as the policeman? Do you see him as the boss? 
Do you see him as the teacher? Well, Hosea 2 and 3 tell us to turn from those images and embrace God for who he truly shows himself to be. And we will find a God who loves us beyond our imagining. Let's pray. Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Our gracious Father, we praise you so much for that great picture of the Lord Jesus who comes to us in our sin, in our idolatry, and buys us back with his own blood. Forgive us, Father, for treating you in the wrong way. Forgive us, Father, for going after other lovers. Please, Father, ignite our hearts again, we pray, with this great picture of your grace towards us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.